Talking about the attributes of God this summer, and, and we've talked about how God is like us and how God is not like us. And I don't know about you, but I think it's easy for us to slip into the mindset that everybody's sort of just like me. You ever, you ever think that? Subconsciously, you sort of catch yourself thinking, well, everybody just thinks the way I do, acts the way that I do, right? I mean, if you love ice cream, it is inconceivable to you why another human being wouldn't love ice cream, right? You just assume everybody does. If, if the way you receive and give love is through hugs and physical affection, you just assume, well, that's how everybody else is going to want to, to be loved. If you believe that, that minimal government intervention is the best way, you can't imagine why anybody would think otherwise, right? Somebody mentioned to me this week about them, him and their wife doing a jigsaw puzzle. To me, jigsaw puzzles are boring, boring, annoying, I'm terrible at them. Why anybody would willfully want to do a jigsaw puzzle is beyond me, right? You just sort of think, well, people must think and act the way you do, because subconsciously that's just what makes sense. Now this can certainly cause problems with the way that we relate to other people, but the real problem is I think we can do this with God as well. See, unknowingly, we operate as though God is like us. And we think, well, God must change His mind. God must get mad over insignificant things. God must still be learning and growing because that's the way we are. And we sort of put Him in our shoes and imagine Him as this big grandfather in the sky with a white beard. Without knowing it, how we imagine God can end up being a God of our own making. Right? Right? Not the true God, not the God as He actually is. And so this summer we've been, we've been looking at His attributes in the Scripture as He has revealed Himself to be. If you go look at this afternoon in Psalm 50, God corrects the people because, because they were thinking this way. They had sinned and God wasn't doing anything about it and, and they just assumed God wasn't going to do anything about it. And he, he rebukes them in Psalm 50 verse 21 and says, You thought I was just like you. And, and that's not good, that's not true. But we, how often do we think, well, God, God must be just like us. Maybe we don't say it, but it, it seems true in our heart. But God is not like us. And this morning, we're going to look at the attributes of God's holiness and God's goodness. And we will see that God is distinct, unlike anything else in all of creation. Now you say, wait a minute, as we've been talking about these attributes, haven't we seen that we reflect God in some of these attributes? Yes, that's true. When we talk about God's knowledge and God's power, we can have knowledge and power. When we talk about God's commitment to justice and mercy, we too can be committed to mercy. But make no mistake about it, while God through His Holy Spirit can transform us to be like Him, and while all people are created in His image and do reflect Him in some regard, it is us that are like God and, and not God who is like us. And we must understand that. And we're ultimately going to see that God is distinct God is not like us, and that is a very, very good thing. So let me pray, and we'll dive into this reality that God is holy. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your grace and your love. We thank you for the gathering of believers here in this place. We pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to work among us as we turn to your word. Would you open our eyes, open our ears, help us to concentrate, to hear your word, to be stirred and encouraged as we live for a God, as we worship a God, as we find life in a God that is holy, a God that is good. Come now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So God is holy. What is holiness? We've been looking at this theologian, pastor, author, Pink. He says that holiness means that God is absolute purity, unsullied even by the shadow of sin. 
See, holiness is the direct opposite, he says, the very antithesis of all moral blemish or defilement. God is the opposite of that. He's, he's separated from sin. He's totally pure. He's completely devoted to seeking all that is good and all that is right. And because all that is good and all that is right is Him, that means He seeks His own glory. That's part of God's holiness. And, and because all of creation, everything around us is in some way broken, fallen, tainted by sin, that means God is other than. He's distinct. He's set apart from everything else we see and experience in our world, in His creation. Remember an example of this when we read about, we read about Moses. And he's out in the field and he's tending his sheep, minding his own business. And all of a sudden he sees this bush on fire and it catches his attention because the bush is not burning up. And he goes over to it to investigate. And what happens? The angel of the Lord speaks from the flame. And the Lord says to Moses, don't come any closer. The place where you're walking is holy ground. Take your shoes off. See, there was a distinction. God had come down. There's something different was going on than what happening in the rest of creation. God was manifesting in the burning bush. His presence was on earth as it is in heaven. And that place became holy, distinct. And Moses couldn't walk up to that bush like he could the rest of the bushes because he was fallen. And God is holy. And anywhere God is becomes sacred, becomes purified from the rest of creation. Now listen, the holiness of God as an attribute is so central, so profound that God actually created angels in heaven, created supernatural beings to constantly call out and to worship Him for His holiness. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah has a vision of the angels calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. In the book of Revelation, in the New Testament, the apostle John has a vision. The same thing the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And we sang that earlier, joining with the angels in heaven. See, the perfection of God, the purity and holiness of God means that He is worthy of our allegiance, our obedience, and worthy of our worship. Worthy of our attention. And it should stir us. It should stir us to worship. In the book of Psalms, we read every human emotion imaginable but central to the Psalms is is praise. And we see the holiness of God. Look at Psalm 99. The psalmist cries out, The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. O Lord our God, You answered them. Talking there about the saints of old. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. One of the most foundational things that we can say about God is that He's holy, He's pure, He's set apart from fallen creation. And we see here in the passage in Psalm 99 that central to God's holiness is both His judgment against sin and His forgiveness of sinners. See, really, God's holiness undergirds many of the other attributes. And we've seen this summer have all of these attributes interrelate and connect. And God's holiness, you can say, one theologian said, is a transcendental attribute. That means that it's like an umbrella covering all of the other attributes. It's like a string running through, like a light, casting light on all of the other attributes. And we see that all of the other attributes are, are informed by God's holiness. The gospel itself, the good news, is driven by the holiness of God. See, God's holiness means that, 
That He's powerful, but not just powerful. In His power, He's pure. He's wise, but His wisdom is true. He's just and His justice is right. He's merciful and His mercy is always good. Because each of these attributes are holy. And so we know that because God is holy, that every characteristic, every thought of God, every word of God, every action of God is untainted by sin, untainted by evil. In fact, God, as, as I referenced a minute ago, cannot even have sin in His presence. See, just as you take a bottle of water and you drop one drop of poison in it, the whole bottle, the whole glass would become contaminated, right? God in His purity cannot be contaminated by anything fallen and tainted and broken by sin. God is pure. The very definition of purity. But, but here's the thing, God is not standoffish about His Holiness. He doesn't have sort of a holier-than-thou mentality, you could say, standing set apart in judgment against us. He wants to share His holiness. He wants His holiness to fill His people, to fill the earth. And so He's driven, compelled to spread it, to bring others into His purity. Not in a way that would taint His purity, but in a way that would transform us to be like Him. And so God devised a way. Devised a way to cleanse us from our sin so that we could come into His kingdom. God's holiness, in fact, is what compelled the Father to send the Son to the cross to die for us. If it had not been for God's holiness, the cross would not have happened. Sin would not needed to be destroyed. But, but sin was destroyed because God is holy. Holiness is what undergirds God's judgment, God's wrath against evil. And so through the work of Christ, we know that through the cross, sin has been abolished for His sons and daughters. Through faith, we are made holy. We are purified. Invited into God's family. If you look at the Greek in the New Testament, the same, the same word that, that's translated in the noun form is holy, and the verb form is sanctified. When you read that in your Scriptures, to be sanctified is to be made holy. And the Scriptures say that that through Christ we have been sanctified through the offering of Jesus. That you were washed. You were sanctified. So friends, if you're here this morning and and you have this vision of of this big, mighty, distant God who is holy, there's a, a sense in which that's true. But if your faith is in Christ, now you too have been made holy. Been purified before Him. And so we can rest. We don't have to... We don't have to feel unworthy or, or, or that God is somehow unattainable. He has invited us and drawn us in by His grace, by His mercy, through the work of Christ. And so we can rest this morning. Rest in your status as a holy son, a holy daughter, a prince, a princess in God's kingdom. And yet, while the Scriptures are very clear that you are sanctified, we also read in, in the New Testament that we are called to be sanctified. To be set apart from the broken world. And so while... Through the work of Christ, our status before God is holy. The hard reality is that here on earth, what? We still stumble. We still struggle. We're still tainted with, by the world around us. Our holy position before God, you might say, is not fully realized here on earth. See, God is not done with us yet, Christian. And so He calls us, His children, to not only receive holiness, but now to be holy, to live a holy life that is set apart, that is distinct. The book of Hebrews calls us to strive for holiness. Now what's interesting is this has always been the vision that God's had for His people. You go back and you look at the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was called to live a radically different life from the nations around them. 
And we read through the laws of Moses and they seem overblown or they seem nitpicky. Why was God giving these very distinct regulative 613 laws? The reason was that His people would be separate. The laws were designed to separate the people from the pagan nations around Him. And the purity laws for the Levitical priests, every square inch of the design of the tabernacle, the detailed system for the sacrifices made at the tabernacle was all designed to set the the nation of Israel apart as holy. And you read through all of those long lists of laws, every minute dietary restriction, the personal cleansing and hygiene laws that, that seem very invasive, the standards of legal justice, the rules for sexual purity, the commands that God had for His people to care for orphans and widows and immigrants, All of this was designed to set apart the nation of Israel. That they would be distinct from the selfish, ruthless practices of the other nations. To be distinct. What what is it to be distinct? To be set apart? How many of you have been been watching the Olympics? Yeah? When you you watch the Olympics and you watch these elite athletes, it's interesting, isn't it? The swimmers, I mean, we're talking about like fractions of seconds that differentiates between gold, silver, and bronze and the guy that nobody will ever remember. Right? Like a fraction of a second. And, and you look at all of them and it's hard to distinguish any one athlete from another. I mean, just watching a, a race, it's only that final finish, right, into an untrained eye like myself. They're all just elite. But, but let's say we're up at the pool this afternoon, right? And let's say Caleb Dressel shows up and he's got his three gold medals around his, his neck and he jumps into the pool and starts swimming laps with us. You're going to notice, right? He's going to be distinct, set apart. Right? If we're playing volleyball this afternoon and one of the Olympic volleyball teams shows up and, 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 and jumps in for a two-on-two match, there will be no question that they're different than us. They're distinct. They're set apart. And that's what God called Israel to be. That's what God calls us to be. You read in the book of Leviticus chapter 11, God's listing all these very intricate, very obscure laws, dietary laws calling them to live holy lives. And it says this in Leviticus 11.44. He's giving the reason. He's giving the reason why he's, he's, he's calling them to this. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God says, this is who I am. I rescued you. I rescued you from slavery. I've called you to be my people. You now be as I am. Now, lest you still think that all of this has nothing to do with you, the Apostle Peter quotes from that verse in Leviticus in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1 or pull it up on your phone. Peter opens his letter in the opening chapter. He's celebrating the salvation that we have in Christ. And he says that this salvation is rooted in the prophets of old. That it's fulfilled through the suffering and glory of Jesus. And then he calls us to live out. He calls us to live out our salvation. To live a life in light of what Jesus has done. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Pick up in verse 13 with me. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You see that? Verse 13 says, look, in light of the Gospel, in light of the good news of your salvation, 
Prepare your minds for action. Be be sober-minded. That means be clear-headed about the way you live your life. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. The grace that's going to fully be yours the day that Jesus returns. His final revelation at His second coming. And He says there in verse 14, like obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions and desires of your former life. We heard a moment ago when we celebrated the Lord's Supper. That, that's a former life. A life that's dead. That's been crucified with Christ. Don't live according to that mindset, but live as a new creation. Full of the Holy Spirit. Live as sons and daughters reflecting their Father. Since God is holy, we are called to also be holy. And then he quotes from that verse in Leviticus. And he says, So be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. Called to live distinct, set apart. Just as God is pure, Separated from sin, completely devoted to seeking all that is good and all that is right. That is the call on us. Now listen, friends, it's not just a call that's out there that's unattainable, but through God's love and His power and His Holy Spirit dwelling in us by His grace and by His Spirit, we are enabled to live these holy lives. And that means what you think has been transformed. What you say can, can come under submission to God. Your priorities, your values, what you do, how you act. See, don't be overwhelmed by this call to holiness. First of all, rest that your status before God has been holy. And recognize that through His love, He is making you holy. You can be different, distinguished from the brokenness around you. You can have hope in the midst of trial and victory in the midst of hardship. Peace in the midst of calamity. A holy God calling a holy people. So the first attribute we see this morning is that God is is holy. I want to look now at the reality that God is good, and these attributes, I believe, are related. But the definition of God's goodness is a little bit different. See, something that is good is is right. It's upright. It's worthy of of approval. And so all that God is and all that God does is the standard of goodness. God's goodness is not like a reflection of anything else. God's not good because He acts like something else. His, His goodness is not derived from anyone else. He simply is good. He is the standard. He defines what it means to be good. Again, Pastor Arthur Pink in his book on the attributes of God says this, The goodness of God means that there is such an absolute perfection in God's nature and being that nothing is wanting to it or defect in it. And nothing can be added to it to make it better. God couldn't be any more good than He already is. He goes on to say that all the goodness there is in any creature has been imparted from the Creator, but God's goodness is underived. For it is the essence of His eternal nature. God in His essence is good. He doesn't have to grow in goodness or follow somebody else's pattern of goodness. In fact, Jesus said that no one is good except God alone. And again, you read through the Psalms, and again and again we read things like, God, you are good and upright. You are good and you do good. And so the goodness of God existed from eternity past, but it was first seen at creation. You remember that after God had completed creating the world, He looked over all of creation. What did He say? He said, it's very good. My goodness, the goodness innate to my being, has now been manifested brought to existence in the created world, and He said it was very good. See, God's goodness is manifested as His benevolence over creation. In fact, we heard last week when we talked about God's mercy and kindness and patience, how God has poured out on believers and unbelievers alike His mercy and His patience. And the same is true of God's goodness. 
The Psalms say that the Lord is good to everyone. That the Lord's goodness and His wondrous works can be seen by all humanity on the earth. We can all see the goodness of God in the world around us. Jesus said that the gift of rain that we're experiencing today, and I need to remind myself it is a gift because we need rain for life. It falls on the just and the unjust, right? But of course, while the world is good, there's still pain. There's still suffering. And and I don't need to tell some of you that this morning. There's still misery and sorrow on the earth. But all all of that is a corruption of God's original goodness in creation. And all the pain and suffering that we experience is either the the direct result of sin or it's the collateral damage, you might say, of the rebellion against God as His world breaks. But in the midst of the brokenness and the sickness and the hardship, God's goodness still shines through. Now listen, some of these attributes that we've been looking at are, are very complicated and it takes time to explain them and understand them. Holiness, I can try to explain it and and help you understand it. But the goodness of God, really the best way to understand it is just to experience it. Amen? In Peter's letter that we just looked at, after he talks about the holiness of God, he says that we can taste that the Lord is good. You can taste it. And he's quoting there from Psalm 34. Turn to Psalm 34. Peter quotes from it. He's going to quote again in his letter about the goodness of God. I think Peter having spent three years with Jesus, the Son of God, the the divine presence of God on earth, fully God Himself, I think Peter knew that when you're with God, you experience goodness. And the best way to know goodness is to experience God. And so he quotes from Psalm 34. We're going to read a chunk of it this morning. Read along with me if you have your Bible in Psalm 34. We're going to read it in, in a few different sections. The first three verses of Psalm 34 say this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. And so the psalmist is gushing and praising God for His goodness. He's saying there, I'm going to praise God. I'm going to bless God all the time, all day, every day. I'm not going to stop speaking and singing about how good God is. He says, I'm going to boast only in the Lord. And anybody who can hear me, those that are humble enough are going to hear my praise and are going to give glory to God. They too will be glad. And then he invites us in verse 3, magnify the Lord with me, would you? Proclaim how great God is. Let's lift up God's name together. See, the psalmist is is doing something that Lewis picked up on, that famous concept that he articulated. That if you really enjoy something, what's going to happen? It's going to spontaneously overflow into praise for that thing, right? When you truly enjoy and value something, of course you're going to praise it and tell other people about it, right? How many of you have, have gone on and on about bonkies? you got to go to bonkies. You try to, oh, you just moved into town? Oh, you're here visiting for the weekend? Did you go to bonkies? You need to go to bonkies. Try Zombie. Try Cookie Monster. Try, try Joe's Garage, right? We, we, we gush about it. It's just, it's just what happens. We don't have to try or think about it. How many of you have ever raved about a new artist, a new song? You've got to download it. You've got to listen to it. It's amazing. See, Lewis, C.S. Lewis says that praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. And when we come to taste and see that the Lord is good and know Him and experience His goodness, we're going to overflow and gush into praise around us and invite other people. You've got to see how good the Lord is. And it gushes out. 
The psalmist continues in, in verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. And so he says, look, there are times of trouble. And when I was in trouble, the psalmist says, I sought the Lord. I cried out to Him and He heard me and He rescued me from my fears. It's like the angel of the Lord is a guardian surrounding me, defending all of those who live in fear. And those who look to God, even in the midst of trouble, their faces are radiant, filled with joy. They will never be ashamed because God will never let them down. And then we read this in verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Lack no good thing. See, what we're seeing here is that the goodness of God can be, should be, experienced. We experience, yes, you can learn about it and read about it, hear others talk about it. But would you experience it? Would you taste it and see it? Now look, the goodness of God is displayed all over creation. Do you ever think for a minute about like God was not stingy when He created the world. He didn't just give us necessity. He was lavish. All of these unnecessary expressions of God's goodness, far beyond what we just need to survive on earth. And Scriptures say that all of the good gifts that we experience have been given from God. He's given us all of these things to enjoy. And we see here in Psalm 34, two senses, right? Taste and sight. But we have five senses. We can experience the goodness of God with all of our five senses. A wealth of experiences to gratify the way God has made us and to demonstrate His goodness. We do have taste buds, right? God didn't make food just taste bland. We can be overwhelmed with food that is sweet, with savory food, with varied and wonderful food. He's given us eyes to be able to enjoy a rainbow of colors. Everything on earth could have been the same color. You ever think about that? But God's goodness bursted out in an infinite array of colors. Flowers, skies, clouds, sunsets, actual rainbows to enjoy. We're leaving the, the kids outreach on Wednesday. And, and, and I've got Sybil and two of their little friends. And they're, they're, actually, they were walking in front of me. And I hear Sybil cry out. It was like one of those cries like, I think somebody's hurt. It was like this desperate like, Oh my goodness! And I say, what is it? And she points just her eight-year-old wondered eyes and says, look, a rainbow! And she's shouting and these three little girls just stopped and they were mesmerized and awed by the goodness of God reflected in the rainbow. How much do we miss seeing the goodness of God? We can taste it. We can see it. We can hear it. Right? I mean, our ears are flooded. Flooded with the chirping of birds, children laughing, music, music that is as varied and diverse as our imaginations will allow. Right? The goodness of God. Our noses that can smell the goodness of God, the baking of bread, a baby's skin, the ocean. Our bodies, sense of touch that can feel sand running through your fingers, the embrace of a loved one, warm water on your sore muscles, the pleasure of sex. All of the five senses enjoying, experiencing God's goodness manifested in creation. Even in the midst of sin, God's creation is still good. Now some of you are saying, okay, all of those things are good and well, and, and, and those sound like fun things, but, but my life is hard. 
Some of you say, I, I deal with chronic pain every day. Or, or I don't have money to go on expensive vacations and you know experience the beach like others do. Or, or sense of smell. Man, I lost my sense of smell with COVID. It still hasn't come back. And, and yes, the world is hard. And we do experience pain and brokenness in this sinful world. And so listen, listen. We cannot disconnect experiencing the goodness of God from God Himself. If we truly want to experience the goodness of God, it's not just about enjoying the created world, it's about enjoying God Himself. What what did we read in verse 8? How blessed, how happy is the one who trusts in the Lord, who takes refuge in Him. You want to truly be blessed and happy? Take refuge in the Lord. See, listen, ultimately it's not a lack of opportunity or a lack of resources that makes it hard for you to experience good things. It's a lack of trust. Theologian John Calvin said it like this, God never disappoints the expectations of those who seek His favor. Our own unbelief is the only impediment which prevents Him from satisfying us largely and bountifully with an abundance of good things. And so yes, yes Christian, you're going to hurt, you're going to suffer. There's hardship and brokenness, but if you will seek the Lord you will receive an abundance of good things. Verse 9 says, says, Holy people of God, fear the Lord. Those who live in awe and worship of God will lack nothing. And the psalmist gives an example of the lion. right? The lion's at the top of the food chain. But, but even the lion cubs, every once in a while, the lion can't find prey. And every once in a while, even the lion doesn't have enough to feed his kids. And the lions experience hunger and want. But not God's children. Not God's saints. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Despite the fact that God's goodness is manifest and poured out abundantly over all of creation, God reserves special goodness for His sons and daughters. Psalm 84, verse 11 says that God holds no good things to live with integrity, who walk with God by His Spirit. The New Testament describes God's saving work for, for us as the goodness and loving kindness of God. Your salvation, the life you have in Christ, is the goodness of God. In Christ, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. Now, as we said, God's goodness is poured out, even on those that don't deserve it, who don't want it, who don't recognize it. But verse 10 says there's a specific kind of goodness that's manifest for those who seek the Lord. Those who seek the Lord, who turn to Him, who walk with Him, who in faith follow Him, lack no good thing. And so the call this morning is to seek. Seek the Lord. To seek the Lord while He may be found. Jesus, in fact, tells us to ask our Father. Ask Him and He will give you good things. Ask Him in prayer. Maybe unexpected things, but good things good things. Let's close with a few more verses from Psalm 34. Pick up back with me in verse 11. There's this beautiful invitation. Come, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. This question, who desires long life? Who desires good days? 
Come, the Scriptures say, come listen. Listen to the Word. The Word will teach you to fear the Lord. And there's this, this question. And I think it's rhetorical. Would, would you love to have your days filled with good things? And let's not make it rhetorical. Like, would, would you like that? Would you like to enjoy a long life filled with God's blessings and filled with good things? I know it's a rhetorical question. It's not answered in Psalm 34. But there's a typical Hebrew response that, that would have been the reply to a question like this. I'm going to teach you some Hebrew this morning. The typical Hebrew reply to a question like, do you want long days filled with good things? Would be, duh. Right? Like, duh, who doesn't want that? Yes, I want to live a long life. I want to know the good things of God. Experience His grace and His mercy and His blessing on earth. So, how do we find that? Is it ultimately in seeking the pleasure of the world for their own sake? Ultimately fulfilling the selfish desires of your own heart? No. The psalm says, fear God. Fear God. Live in awe and wonder at His power and His greatness and His love. Seek God. That means make Him your priority, your passion. Make Him the the first thing you get on your knees calling out to in the morning and the the last thing you think about at night. Let Him orient your life. Verse 13 says to seek God means to live in integrity. Don't speak evil. Don't speak lies, but turn from evil. Do good. Do good to others. Just as God has been good to you, you do good to others. Lavishly. When it's not deserved, when it's not asked for, when it's not warranted. Be good to them. Be loving to them. Be kind to them just as God has been to you. Seek after peace, verse 13 says. That means seek peace with other people. Seek peace with God in heaven. Seek peace with yourself. Friends, this is something we have to strive for and seek after. As Pastor Matt said last week, not a single one of us is going to drift closer to God. You will only ever drift away from God. And so if you want to know His goodness, if you want to walk with Him in holiness, seek Him, strive for Him, walk with Him. See, our God is holy and our God is good, but He invites us into that. He invites us into it, experience His holiness and His purity, to experience His goodness and His lavish benevolence, and then to walk in that holiness, walk in that purity, to walk in that goodness, experiencing it for ourselves and calling others, inviting others, demonstrating for others the goodness of God. And so as the worship team comes, let's, let's worship this God. Let's fear this God and seek this God. Let's follow Him. And by His grace, through the work of Christ, let's be like Him. Let's be sons and daughters that imitate and reflect our Father. Father in heaven, we thank You for the great work that You've done in Christ. We thank You that You've called us and forgiven us and filled us with new life with Your Holy Spirit. God, give us grace to rest in our holy status before You in heaven and give us grace to strive for holiness here on earth. To by Your Spirit to crucify those selfish desires of our heart. And God, would You give us a taste for Your goodness. There are things in the world that taste good outside of You, but Lord, give us a taste. Give us a heart that we would only want to taste and touch and smell and experience Your goodness coming right from You. We thank You for the abundance that You've poured out on creation, but God, we want You above all else. And so we worship You today. Stir us and fill us as we sing this song. Fill us with Your Spirit that we could be 
men and women of faith that strive and that seek You with all that we have. Come, Holy Spirit, and make Your holy presence known. Make Your good presence known. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and worship.